Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this show, we speak to Hassan Abu Bakr about how charities work to change policy in order to support their beneficiaries and garner governmental support. Moving MPs, local government and councils to support your cause and help to create meaningful change to your charity's beneficiaries is the core of what Hassan and I spoke about, once again in a fairly noisy London cafe. This episode was suggested by one of our loyal listeners and we thank her for coming up with this most interesting of topics. Katie, all of us here at Charity Chat, thank you for contributing in your own right. Without further ado, here is Hassan and I speaking about how charities can change policy. Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm here with Hassan Abu Bakr, policy manager in the third sector. Hello, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Um, Nice to be here. It's great to have you. So we're here to talk about charities changing policy. Yeah. So one of our listeners, this is is off the back of one of our listeners, contacting us and asking if we could do a show on this and as soon as we heard it we thought Casey this is a great idea and so our first question really is how can charities affect social change through influencing government policy? Well I mean I think Sam there are a number of different avenues which charities can explore. I think the vast majority of charities who have a policy and influencing function have dedicated staff who have come who have a particular niche within this area. They understand how Westminster works. Yeah. They understand the policy development process, who the correct people to speak to are. Usually most people who come into policy working in the third sector um, may have worked for an MP after they graduated from university okay. or they may have worked for a lobbying firm, a private organisation which has a number of clients to lobby government on their um, interest areas yeah. and coming into the third sector or coming into a, what we call an in-house role means that you can really get to the nuts and bolts of an issue which your organisation is trying to change sure. and move, move that agenda forward. I mean there are a number of different sort of sub sort of categories of policy is quite an overarching it is isn't it so I, I suppose you know, you kind of, I think when I hear policy I think going to Westminster and meeting yeah. with MPs but presumably you know you can talk about policy when, within um, local government yeah. council and yeah, then, yeah. I mean, I, mean it's, I think a lot of it depends on the kind of organisation which you may be working for yeah. uh, the resources that they have sure and what you're actually looking to achieve. So, for instance, you know, in my career, I've worked for some um, large national health and social care charities, uh, quite big charities with quite a large resource. Yeah. Lots of staff who work in policy, public affairs, which is um, more trying to work with particular stakeholders in Westminster, ministers, MPs, and civil servants, the actual people who work for the government who are non-party political to try to change things and who may also do more localised campaigning on particular issues mm-hmm. to much smaller charities where they may have a single aim uh, and they work at a level which you know they have to choose pick and choose their battle shall we say sure, um, sure. I mean if you're a if you're a Macmillan or a Cancer Research UK yeah. or a Save the Children or UNICEF UK the the resources at your disposal are probably going to be a lot bigger than uh, if you're a small charity with a quite small income. 
um, you have to really hone the message that you want to want to deliver. And presumably, being a large charity like that, like Macmillan or something, or Cancer Research, for example, yeah. the people you're talking to will have. Um, they'll be well informed about what you do because it's a well-known brand, yeah, isn't it? It's a yeah. well-known organisation. I mean, I mean, in my in my career, I've worked for large charities where I've never had to tell anyone who I was. Yeah. Uh, and I've worked for smaller charities where the first thing, if I have a meeting with an MP or a civil servant that yeah. I've contacted, they don't contact me, I contact them. <laughs> the first thing that I do is I explain what the organisation I work for does, mm-hmm. what our overall goal is, yeah. and what are the key issues for us that we would like to see change. Okay. For those larger charities, you don't necessarily have to do the first bit. But what you might find is, you might find uh, for one of those organisations that they may have a particular interest in the policy area that you wouldn't necessarily expect them to have. Then um, explaining what you're actually there about then becomes maybe a bit different. You may expect them to ha- be having a different sort of thing. But you, know, you, would, you would explain fully what you were, what you were looking to achieve. If you're, going, if you're looking, say for example, you're, you're a small charity listening to this and you want to reach out to, to MPs on, yeah. uh, on, your, you know, on, on helping your beneficiaries or people like beneficiaries in society, do you just go to a group of MPs at, at random and say, could you support us? Is it kind of like corporate fundraising where you're looking at you know, finding a synergy with mm. a company? Is it similar with an MP? Yes, to an extent. I, I think there are... Um, Obviously, your job is a lot more difficult if you have a low profile, low brand awareness. Sure. Um, brand awareness uh, also relates to how MPs view particular causes. So, you know, you're always going to have those types of causes which MPs are more, are always going to support. You know, I'm not going to say anything against people with living dementia or cancer. Sure, sure, or, sure. Um, animals are always a great one as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Animal cruelty. Yeah. And Housing at the moment, it's such a hot topic Absolutely. at the moment. Yeah. If you're working for a centre port point or a shelter, you're, you're likely to have the ear of, uh, of those MPs. Sure. When, when, it's, when it's something a bit more niche, yeah. then your, your task becomes a bit more difficult. And the way that I've done it in my career is um, there are a number of um, products and services available to Politico's monitoring services which they monitor um, things that happen within the House of Commons so you can uh, uh, find out information about what a particular MPs has said publicly whether that be through uh, an adjournment debate a Westminster Hall debate whether they've placed any uh, parliamentary questions either in uh, your area or an area that relates quite closely to so you can build up a real um, portfolio of uh, MPs who may being people that would, would be poten- okay. potential, have the potential to support yeah. you. Um, however, there are other tricks in the trade, shall we say. So, um, generally, I find that after a new election, yeah. you get a whole um, tranche of new MPs who um, are always good to hit up. Yeah. Because new M- new MPs um, on the backbenches, they want to make a name for themselves. Sure. If they're ambitious anyway. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they usually do that through campaigning on particular issues. So they're always looking for a particular issue to campaign on. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, the last election, uh, the 2017 election, there are 99 new MPs. Right. And for my current employer, uh, I contacted all of them, congratulating oh, them on their, their, their job. Uh, yeah. And also, this is 
what we do and this is, these are our issues and 10% of those MPs got back and agreed to meetings Wow. for an organisation which is very small and doesn't yeah. necessarily have that um, brand awareness within Westminster that's a really good hit rate yeah. so you need to again pick and choose your battles because you may not you could just email everyone and see what you get back Yeah. but I mean I always usually target people Absolutely. maybe look at cross cutting issues across I mean I work majority of my career has been spent in health and social care and medical research okay. so cross-cutting issues with other conditions perhaps to see where the synergies also there's a real focus at the moment in terms of government policy around multi-morbidities and treating older people because sure. we live in an aging population Absolutely. who have um, two or three or four long-term conditions there are always ways in which you can track your own issues onto maybe a, an issue that has more more awareness amongst the public and amongst Westminster parliamentarians yeah. to, to get your message across. Right, okay. And I, I kind of, you know, talk about uh, there are services out there that you can use to get this information. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose also things like uh, Twitter and social media, are, are MPs on that? In oh, absolutely. This, um, I mean, that's, that's probably been the biggest change in pub policy and public affairs over the last five years. Is that um, and Donald Trump? His whole campaign well, exactly. is based around uh, I mean, uh, I'll use an example <laughs> from uh, a previous role yeah. that I uh, sent a briefing to uh, a number of MPs before a before a debate on assisted dying, actually, and actually send, just sending sort of a traditional email yeah. and didn't get a great response rate. Directly sure. tweeting MPs saying, "There's a briefing in your inbox." was far more successful wow, because okay. they're always on their phones and yeah. they've always got their Twitter up because they, that's how it's, it's, a, it's such a powerful engagement tool for MPs to talk, to, to talk directly to their constituents about sure. what they're doing, about uh, issues that they're supporting, yeah. you know, m making sure that you know, they're, they're, they're showing their constituents that they're doing a good job, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. And they're responding to requests yeah, exactly. Really uh, and it, it's digital has really transformed the way in which uh, practitioners have are doing policy and public affairs these days. Yeah. If you if you're if you're not on Twitter, if you're not digital savvy, you're a step behind. Right. Are there any specific examples you can think of of how charity campaigns have helped have helped to change policy? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there are there are a large number of campaigns which I've really admired, shall we yeah, say. Yeah. Um, I think uh, one recently which uh, I thought was was great, and this is this is a change in actual legislation. Okay. Um, I, I mean, a charity which I've always admired their policy and public affairs work as being one of the gold standards within the charity sector is shelter. Okay. Yeah. Housing has become such a real live issue. I look at myself trying to buy a buy a, buy a flat. <laughs> it, it, it's, in London. It's, in London, oh yeah, and it's, it's not the easiest thing to do. But um, uh, Shelter, about two years ago, uh, managed to get uh, a change in the law regarding uh, revenge evictions. Oh, yeah. So for pri private renters who uh, make complaints to their landlords about you know, the state of their properties, whether sure. it be heating or previously, they were incredibly vulnerable to landlords evicting them at very short notice yeah. and being made homeless. Right. But there was a changes in the law which basically protected the rights of tenants mm. in those situations much, much more robustly, which was a great because that is a real issue which so many people that I know 
who live in pr uh, private rented accommodation yeah. could be at vulnerable to. Yeah. So that was something that I, that I really admired. I mean, there's been some really, really like great examples over the last five to ten years. I think probably one of the biggest ones in the cancer space would be cancer researchers' work along with Action Against Smoking. Um, which was around bringing in the smoking ban yeah. in 2009 and then obviously the massive win that Cancer Research received from introducing plain packaging on cigarette uh, right, packets. Nice. That um, was a very, very long campaign. Lots of different methods Cancer Research used, mobilising their supporters to contact their MPs. Yeah. Lots of parliamentary Westminster action days. And you know, the government dragged their heels on it, but eventually uh, they, they changed that. I mean, really they, recently. I mean, smoking seems to have, certainly, you know, public smoking seems to have reduced massively. massively so, um, I, mean, I was a smoker back then, and I remember when it came in, feeling a little bit indignant that I was now going to be forced to go outside in the winter. But you know what? It helped me quit, and so I'm very pleased that it And happened. it's also initiated a culture change as well. Absolutely, So yeah. now, if you like speak, a lot of them, a part of their routine is now formed by going outside. Sure. And they wouldn't dream of smoking indoors anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a really large-scale public health campaign, Absolutely. which has really changed behaviours uh, more widely in yeah. society. Another really uh, example, this is quite a recent one, the Stroke Association have been campaigning for a, a national stroke plan okay. for, 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 for about a year. So there was a stroke strategy and that was coming to the end of its cycle. So this is England specific uh, and this isn't actually campaigning to, to the government. This yeah. is actually, cam so traditionally you know, government, department of health or whatever department your, your issue lay within was your overall uh, sort of target okay. and now a body like NHS England which is independent of the government they make they have a lot of control over the NHS budget right. more, so, more so than the Department of Health and Social Care do so they're the guys Simon Stevens the CEO of that Bruce Keogh who was the medical director yeah. they're the guys that you need to be influencing to change policy and about three or four months ago uh, I believe Bruce Keogh was one of his last acts as NHS uh, national uh, medical director um, said that NHS England will be introducing a national stroke plan, which wow. is a massive, a massive win. And for that's because of work by the team, stroke, by stroke, the, stroke yeah, association. Um, um, by the Stroke Association, wow. almost. I, I mean, uh, uh, there are others involved, but they yeah. are the major player. Yeah. Um, I mean, even from my own career, I, I worked for a large health um, end of life care charity. Um, we worked in a coalition of uh, other charities within that space, quite large ones like. Macmillan and Marie Curie, sure. and we campaigned um, for uh, better end-of-life care and one of the key things that we were campaigning for was end-of-life care metrics to be on the NHS mandate. So that's the mandate which the Department of Health gives to NHS England and say these are things that you need to focus on. Right, okay. Um, that's what, the they give them 110 billion every year. That's um, what it yeah, um, every year. And basically say we would like to see uh, improvement in these key areas and for the wow. first time ever three years ago end-of-life care deliverables were included within that wow. which was a real real coup yeah, for, yeah. For, for us in the end-of-life care space uh, I was seen that being seen um, predominantly as a bit of a poor relation to other clinical areas within health um, and uh, the focus on end-of-life care has really increased because of that, um, there's been some other things as well. Mm. Because actually, if you think about it, it's the one thing that you know unites us all is that we're all going to die one day. Yeah. So that was some, just from my own personal experience of you know how 
worked at what I've been involved in this change policy. That was a real highlight of my career. Within the policy space, obviously you've got, you hear about lobbyists on the other yeah. side of things who are, you know, typically in movies, they're the big tobacco <laughs> companies yeah, yeah, or the yeah, gun yeah. companies, yeah, yeah. you know, trying to influence the government. Now, charities are doing the policy um, influencing yeah. the other side of things. Do you ever, do you want to, it's something you want to talk about, but um, do you go up against the other side in, in the work that you do? I've never done that. No. Uh, so does that happen to so, you? Know, in the yeah, there would be. So, so for instance, um, Philip Philip Morris did not want play packaging to come sure, into play. So sure. Philip Morris would have hired a lobbying firm to do their lobbying for them on behalf of that, yeah. and they would have come up against Ash. They would have come up against Crook, Cancer Research UK. They would have come up against the cancer charity lobby sure, and individual sure. supporters to find them. But personally, within my own career. No, and a lot of these lobbyists for hire yeah. work for charities as well. Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah. lots of ex- lots of examples where I've worked with public affairs agencies, consultancies, who will take your take your issue one for a fee. Right. So that, um, I mean, we are lobbyists in almost the same way. Yeah. But I think within the charity sphere, what separates us from the lobbyists to have, I mean, lobbying has. Um, got a lot tighter in Scotland for instance so okay. now in Scotland um, a new lobbying registry has been introduced which means that um, any charity uh, that has a meeting with a, a, a Scottish parliamentarian mm. or a Scottish minister has to declare that irrespective okay. of um, what it's about yeah. whereas that doesn't exist in England so okay. I mean charities aren't going to be meeting MPs and giving them financial incentives to, sure, support, their, sure. to support their <laughs> issue you know they'll be making a robust case hopefully that's evidence-based yeah. but also um, bringing that patient voice aspect mm. so I always say that uh, uh, the, uh, a good lobbyist to really influence government policy you need two things you need a really well-evidenced robust case yeah that is watertight sure but you also need that human element about how it affects people's lives or to really to really drive that emotive message through because a lot of it can be really emotive because i mean they say in in marketing spheres that uh, emotion drives behavioral change and then people rationalise the decisions they've made based on emotion. You know? Yeah. And I suppose MPs are people like everybody else. Yeah. So you're you're influencing them with emotion partly, and then uh, and then giving them the stats to back up. You know why and they decided to support yeah. you. And what you will actually yeah. find is a lot of MPs uh, will have personal experience of that issue. Sure. So you may find a, an MP who is the chair of an all parliament all party parliamentary group on a particular issue mm. because they have personal experience of that issue. So for instance, the APPG on diabetes is chaired by Keith Baz, who's yeah. a Labour MP, used to be chair of the Home Affairs Committee. He has diabetes. Okay. So he has been a tireless campaigner yeah. for diabetes care for the last 20 years. Sure. And that, knowing where those personal pinch points are, mm. I mean, it may sound a bit like you're taking advantage, but it helps. Sure, um, sure. It helps, um, and you know, some people are absolutely willing to bend over backwards because it's something that they really believe in, yeah. and that's great. You can you can definitely tell when a policymaker is doesn't necessarily have that emotional connection, 
they think it makes sense, the evidence is watertight, but you can really tell the ones who are like, oh, this is, it's really touched them on a personal Absolutely. level. Absolutely. And they're really like, tell me what, what I can do, I'll, I'll do anything to help. Yeah. And that's that's when you can really make some difference. And I suppose, you know, MPs are, like a lot of people, probably quite time poor, so Incredibly make, time making poor. it as easy for them as possible, is that the aim of a yeah, Absolutely. A I think and, um, one thing which charities usually have, which an MP won't have, or their staff, or, or, and at a ministerial level where they have the civil service at their yeah. disposal, is you are generally the uh, the thought leader on that issue. Right. You are seen as the experts. Okay. In those uh, instances, lots of MPs, ministers, they come to you. And it's like, what do you think about this? Like, what is? Well, we, we need your input because you guys own the space yeah and a lo- yeah a lot of the time that's what you're doing you're, you're sending the briefings before it depend depending on what kind of thing you're looking to change and you know, before briefing uh, before debates you might send them a, brief, um, a debate briefing when it comes to a bill hearing so actual pieces of legislation that go through the house of commons and the house of lords uh, what you'll find is a lot of charities um, who take ownership of a particular issue in that area will provide mp briefings before that and you will hear uh, MPs get up in the debates at second reading, or, and they will cite figures from a charity. So okay. like this research by XXX yeah, has shown yeah, yeah. that um, this is an issue that needs to change. This is the evidence. So it's almost a up. script, is it? That the, that a charity. Um, uh, a, a script. A script would be detailed. Yeah, I mean, a script would be. Uh, would, I wouldn't describe it. It's a briefing. It's you okay. know, you've got to be succinct. Sure. It can't be too long. Yeah. It needs to capture the imagination. You need to get all of your facts in there, but keep it as short as possible if you can. No one wants to read a 10-page document. <laughs> two, two to four pages is generally my, my, my sort of... If I, can, if I can't help it, I, two pages for me. Yeah. If you can't get your, um, your, your points down to two pages, unless it's really, there's some really important stuff, then, then you, you're not articulating your right, message okay. uh, um, succinctly enough. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's... They, they, you know, they interpret that how they wish, but that's kind of the way when it comes to sort of legislation briefing. When it comes to, so um, there's a committee stage, yeah, um, uh, for bill for, for when bills pass through the houses. That's when it's a line by line scrutiny of the bill. There may be evidence given by um, interested parties, so it could be about housing. Head of policy at Shelter might give evidence or about cancer and. Um, director of policy at cancer research might get evidence sure. and that's much more in-depth scrutiny than you would have at the, uh, the other stages of that uh, as that legislation passed through. Is there, any, is there any value in a charity, say it's a local charity, approaching their MP or, or should the approach be made more as we've said on maybe on the um, interest of an MP rather than maybe the location of where the charity is based? Mm, that's an interesting question actually. It depends what you, as a charity, your remit is. Yeah. If you are a localised charity, so your remit is, um, you know, a borough of London sure. or a county, sure, then sure. I think that. Or approach, conservation in an area, yeah, or something I like think that. that approach has some merit. Yeah. Uh, because you're looking for a local champion in effect. Sure, sure. If you're a national charity mm. and your office happens to be based in a particular part of the country, yeah. that MP is no different to any other, I, I, sure. would, I would say. Sure. Um, you're, I mean, if you're a national 
charity with, with enough resource, your ambition should be a bit higher than that. You should be looking to speak directly to ministers or secretaries of state yeah. and looking to influence legislation, uh, looking to garner support from get uh, 100,000 of your supporters to contact their MPs and sign right, petitions right, and course. really make this a live issue. Get media coverage for your campaign. Media and uh, PR and media and policy have a huge interplay when it comes to large-scale national campaigns. Yeah. Your, 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 uh, your end game might be a bit higher <laughs> than your local MP in that respect. But what is also good about local MPs is, and this is another thing, if you're a smaller charity that I yeah. would suggest is, MPs spend Monday to Thursday afternoon in Westminster. Right. From Thursday afternoon, they usually go back to their constituency. Friday, they're looking to do stuff in their community. So Fridays can be a really good day for local charities to invite their, their local MP, um, they'll dress down to a meeting in the local area, or maybe there's an event that you're hosting your MP would love to get involved. Okay. Get someone from the local paper down. Special guests. Yeah, yeah, that something like that works guest. a treat. Yeah. If that, for like that sort of awareness sure, raising thing. Sure, sure. I've done that. Yeah. Had constituency meetings, travelled all around the country to meet MPs, but also the majority of the stuff I've done has been in Westminster. Though. Yeah. One of the things, it really depends on my mood, whether I do or not, is signing online petitions. And I know right. that, you know, charities and now individuals, you know, through like change.org and all these yeah, other yeah. platforms. And there seems to be all these platforms for trying to get government to at least consider changes in policy yeah. that are being driven not just by charities but by individuals. I mean, how is that affecting the landscape of um, the work that you do? I mean, is it changing things, how you approach I, It has slightly. I think that you know, things like 38 Degrees, Change.org, has really engaged normal people within society, just general members of the public, to be more vocal about issues that uh, matter to them. Sure. I mean, uh, another thing is the, there are, there's the petitions on Parliament now, yeah. which means that any petition which is, changed, uh, which is started on Parliament website it gets 100,000 signatures right. that can be uh, debated within the House of Commons. Okay. It can be debated by Parliament. And, you know, things which I think people are becoming more engaged as citizens in that political process. I mean, the, the, the biggest example of that would be things like referendums, yeah. uh, which is direct democracy at its absolute base. Good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, dependent on your, your views on certain Absolutely. things. Yeah, yeah. And I think that has changed it slightly. But mm. however, charities have become a lot more canny about doing how they use those platforms as well. Yeah. So, for instance, there'll generally be in a, in a, a larger charity. Um, there'll generally be staff who are looking to develop policy. Okay. So the policy staff they will write position papers, they'll write briefings, they will uh, write reports. Yeah. Then there'll be your public affairs staff, who are the ones that speak to ministers, the ones that speak to MPs, the ones that work with the civil servants and so on and so forth. Then there'll be your campaigners, and they're the ones who are looking to get public support, sure. looking to get a group of supporters who will to mobilise them on an issue that they're interested in. Absolutely. And they will be yeah. using the, either their own forums <laughs> or forums like change like that to generate huge amounts of public support for a particular issue because that's another thing which is also another string to a bow of an effective uh, policy public affairs campaign function is getting that public support on an issue 
makes it much harder for the powers that be to ignore it. Right. So things like that have, have changed it slightly, yeah. but good, good people, uh, good practitioners will use that to their advantage. If a small charity were listening to this, um, you know, could, and, they, and they didn't do any policy work, for example, yeah. could one of the things they do, uh, would go onto one of these platforms, these petition platforms, and, or get, ask one of their supporters to do it, and, and start to bang the drum, is that enough, or do you need to support a petition with additional you know, um, I mean, I wouldn't want to talk myself out of a job. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think going back to your first point about um, garnering support, I think you can do that without yeah. um, that sort of level of input within the actual sure, sure. resource and the staff time. That yeah. you would However, I think when it comes to complex issues, when it comes to understanding where the hooks are and the niches are. I think you do need staff who come from that background yeah, because yeah. They, they know how to play the game in effect. And, and relationships, I suppose, and building relationships. Incredibly important. Because, and also it occurs to me, I'm, I'm sure I've read somewhere around the fact it was put in, in these terms, which aren't necessarily good ones, um, but then it's the, the online petition, there's an arm race, arms race there between the online petition and the software that... MPs use to respond to, you know, just kind of mass mailings and things yeah. like that. Because obviously if an MP gets now hundreds of thousands of emails, they're not going to be able to answer them. Even their team might necessarily be yeah. able to answer them. So again, it goes through kind of, in some cases... So that's where relationships really come into play. Absolutely, yeah. So if you send, you know, a campaign email, and you'll see when you email an MP, they, they usually, if it's about, you know, business that pertains to their uh, job as a as a constituency MP, yeah. you're like, please name, name, address, and I'll contact. I will deal with your query. Mm-hmm. If it's more of a campaigning, influencing type of thing, you may not get a response, sure. or you may get a response a long time down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, when you when you build relationships with MPs, you're not just building a relationship with that individual person. You're building a relationship with the parliamentary researcher or their office manager, right. or the person who's in charge of their diary. Um, if, you're, um, if you're looking to influence a minister, you're not necessarily just building a relationship with the minister, mm. you're, um, you're uh, building a relationship with their spads, their special advisors, right. the, the private secretaries from the civil service who support the minister on policy issues, uh, all of the staff that they have at their disposal dependent on how senior that person is. Yeah. And having those relationships absolutely crucial because those are more personalised relationships than you would probably have with the minister or the MP at hand and they're the ones that can help get things done otherwise you're just another email in a sea of emails yeah. the actual people that work for them don't get nearly as many emails as the actual MP account would do those are the relationships that you need to foster So how is the scene changing for charities and what advantages and disadvantages does this pose for changing government policy? I think the scene is changing in quite a few ways, like the big boys are investing even more heavily in their resource. Right. They really see the, the power of that having a, enough staff to be able to um, fight on numerous fronts, yeah. but also having the right staff. It is quite, a, I would say, a quite a niche part of the charity landscape. Mm. You, you wouldn't, most people who work in policy for a charity 
haven't moved around in different roles. They may have a PR background and may have done some PR, sure. but they generally aren't likely to have been fundraisers uh, or uh, working with supporters, um, supporter engagement, supporter journeys, and things like that. They may have worked for MPs in the past. It's a very clearly defined career path. Yeah. So ha ensuring that you have the right people is, um, is critical to that. I think that there can be a bit of a pushback. So, I mean, for more of the private lobbyists, shall we say, where they didn't previously have to declare meetings with certain people, there's a bit of an outcry, there was a bill, the Lobbying Act, yeah. which was introduced a few years ago, which put restrictions on how much charities can spend in an election period, okay. which, for most charities, that's not an issue. Mm. But if you're Oxfam or Save the Children, or mainly international development charity, but I think um, there has been a move from the government recently to maybe curb the voice of charity slightly. Yeah. So there was an advocacy course which was suggested by uh, Matt Hancock, uh, who was at the time digital minister in uh, the Department for Digital Media, Culture and Sport. He's now the health secretary, replaced Jeremy Hunt recently. Uh, which said that um, charities that were in the seat of government money could not use that money to lobby the government. It could only be spent on um, services sure, and, you sure. know, a core, core mission. Right. However, a lot of charities, their core mission is campaign. You could look at uh, organisations like Greenpeace and Oxfam, mm. where they do provide you know, emergency response services and international development. Yeah. A huge part of what they do is campaigning for change. Sure. The, the, the kind of, that was quite criticised by the charity sector. Mm. The, the main major body that represents the charity sector, NCBO, criticised it roundly. I mean, from my own personal opinion, I, I believe that charities have a really strong role in, as a critical friend yeah. to uh, to government and to policy making. Sure. I, I always think that policy making is made stronger by consultation mm. and consensus among stakeholders than yeah. siloed autocratic policy making. Sure. Sure. The reason why uh, people who work in charities is because they want to make a difference and they a lot of the times they are experts in what they're talking about Absolutely, and the yeah. government aren't. Yeah. So that input from, from, from charities is absolutely crucial ensuring yeah. uh, good policy making. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, that that change will, you know, there have been things in the past which have tried to curb that. I mean, a lot of it depends on who the government of the day is. We have quite a fractious political environment at the moment. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, I'm optimistic that charities will continue to play the part which they have done for, for many years, which is to help the government improve policy that it makes. Again, small charities listening to this, or charity workers listening to yeah. this, who work or want to work in that space, or already work in that space in a small way, what can they do to develop their skills if they they haven't, you know, uh, worked for an MP before, or any of these other yeah. things, which are often the um, 
suppose, the route that a lot of people, the donors policy take, mm. if they've just come into charity, obviously listening to this podcast episode is a good step. Well, hopefully. Good first step. <laughs> but, you know, after that, what kind of things are there? Are there courses? Are there qualifications that yes. people can do? Yes. So, um, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, um, NCDO, the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, they provide uh, a number of different um, sorts of breakfast intro- introductions to campaigning, Brilliant. how to influence government courses. That they're sort of at the lower ends. Um, there are there is a chartered institute for public relations, okay. so you can do professional qualifications in the whole sort of PR sphere. A lot of that would include public affairs sure. and policy making. Sure, um, they're quite pricey, yeah. but they are. Um, you may be able to either put yourself through it or you may find your employer may want to help you. There are a number of different organisations which provide sort of professional help yeah. for, for campaigning, how to develop policy. There are, go down an academic route. There are university courses where um, you can learn how, you know, in particular very niche areas, um, about, depending on the actual policy area, you know, health, housing, education. Yeah. There are a number of different things, but I mean, for most smaller charities, speak to MCVO or some of the other umbrella campaigning bodies. Sure. They might be able to help you with some introductory courses and you can learn the basics of, of um, influencing and policy development through them. Hassan Abu Bakr, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. My pleasure. There you go, dear listener. A big thank you to Hassan Abu Bakr, who gave a very enlightening account of how charities seek to influence policy. I found that fascinating, and I hope you did too. A big thank you also to our listener, Katie, for suggesting the topic. If you have an idea for a topic or a guest of the show, please do get in touch with us through our website, charitychat.org.uk. Likewise, if you'd like to contact us with any feedback, please do. You can find all of our contact information, including our social media presence, through the website. Again, that's charitychat.org.uk. A big thank you to you for listening. We really appreciate it. And thank you also to our sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for beautiful website design, RR Yard Photography for the beautiful images on our website, And of course, Forest of Fools, who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. That's it from me. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Cheerio.